Thank you for joining me at the Quiet Corner Bedtime Stories. I'm Annie, and along with my co-host Eamon, we read you some of our favourite classic stories with some quiet, soothing music to help you relax and fall asleep. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at the Quiet Corner Bedtime Stories. You can also leave a rating or review wherever you like to listen to this podcast. It's a chance to tell us what you love about the show and it helps others discover it too. On Spotify, each episode has show notes you can respond to. We love hearing from you. Thank you to all our listeners. Your support is much appreciated. Welcome to the Quiet Corner Bedtime Stories. I'm Eamon, and tonight I'll be reading you part two of The Man with the Twisted Lip by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. In part one, Holmes and his faithful friend Watson have been investigating the apparent murder of Neville St. Clair. But something is not adding up, and Holmes's usual genius is being thwarted. So in an effort to find more clues, the pair have travelled to Kent to question the victim's wife, Mrs. St. Clair. We pulled up in front of a large villa, which stood within its own grounds. A stable boy had run out to the horse's head, and springing down, I followed Holmes up to a small winding gravel driveway, which led to a house. As we approached, the door flew open, and a little blonde woman stood in the opening, clad in some sort of light garment with a touch of fluffy pink chiffon about her neck and wrists. She stood with her figure outlined in the flood of light, one hand upon the door, one half raised in eagerness, her body slightly bent, her head and face protruding, with eager eyes and parted lips and a standing question. Well, she cried, well, and then seeing that there were two of us, she gave a cry of hope, which sank into a groan as she saw that my companion shook his head and shrugged his shoulders. No good news? None. No bad? No. Well, thank God for that. But come in. You must be weary, for you have had a long day. This is my friend Dr. Watson. He has been of the most vital use to me in several of my cases and a lucky chance has made it possible for me to bring him out and associate him with this investigation. Well, I'm delighted to see you, she said, pressing my hand warmly. You will, I am sure, forgive anything which may be wanting in our arrangements, when you consider the blow which has come so suddenly upon us. My dear madam, said I, I am an old campaigner, and if I were not, I can very well see that no apology is needed. If I can be of any assistance to either you or my friend here, I shall indeed be happy. Now Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said the lady, as we entered a well-lit dining room, upon the table of which a cold supper had been laid out. I should very much like to ask you one or two plain questions to which I beg that you will give a plain answer. Certainly, madam. Do not trouble about my feelings. I am not hysterical nor given to fainting. I simply wish to hear your real, real opinion. Upon what point? In your heart of hearts, do you think that Neville is alive? 
Sherlock Holmes seemed to be embarrassed by the question. Frankly now, she repeated, standing upon the rug and looking keenly down at him, he leaned back in a basket chair. Frankly then, madam, I do not. You think that he is dead? I do. Murdered? I don't say that, but perhaps. And on what day did he meet his death? On Monday. Then perhaps, Mr. Holmes, you will be good enough to explain how it is that I have received this letter from him today. Sherlock Holmes sprang out of his chair as if he had been galvanized. What? He roared. Yes, today. She stood smiling, holding up a little slip of paper in the air. May I see it? Certainly. He snatched it from her in his eagerness, and smoothing it out upon the table, he drew over the lamp and examined it minutely. I had left my chair, and I was gazing at it over his shoulder. The envelope was a very coarse one, and was stamped with the Gravesend postmark, and the date of it was that very day, or rather the day before, for it was considerably after midnight. Coarse writing, murmured Holmes. Surely this is not your husband's writing, madam? No, but the enclosure is. I perceive also that whoever addressed the envelope had to go and inquire as to the address. How can you tell that? The name you see is in perfect black ink, which has dried itself. The rest is greyish colour and shows the blotting paper has been used. If it had been written straight off and then blotted, none of it would be of a deep black shade. This man has written the name, and there, there has been a long pause before he wrote the address, which can only mean that he was not familiar with it. It is, of course, a trifle, but there is nothing so important as trifles. Let us now see the letter. Ha! There has been an enclosure here. Yes. There was a ring, his signet ring. And you are sure that this was your husband's hand? One of his hands? One? His hand when he wrote it hurriedly, it is very unlike his usual writing, and yet I know it well. Dearest, do not be frightened. All will come well. There is a huge error which it may take a little time to rectify. Wait in patience. Neville. Written in pencil upon the flyleaf of a book, octavo size with no watermark, said Holmes. It was posted today in Gravesend by a man with a dirty thumb, Ha! Huh. And the flap has been gummed, if I'm not very much in error, by a person who is chewing tobacco. And you have no doubt that this is your husband's hand, madam? None. Neville wrote those words. And they were posted today at Gravesend. Well, Mrs. St. Clair, the clouds lighten, though I should not venture to say that the danger is over. But he must be alive, Mr. Holmes. Unless this is a clever forgery, to put us on the wrong scent. The ring, after all, proves nothing. It may have been taken from him. No, no, it is. It is him, it's his very own writing. Very well. It may, however, have been written on Monday and then posted only today. That is possible. If so, much may have happened in between. Oh, you must not discourage me, Mr. Holmes. I know that all is well with him. There is so keen a sympathy between us that I should know if evil ever came upon him. 
On the very day that I saw him last, he cut himself in the bedroom, and yet I in the dining room rushed upstairs instantly with the utmost certainty that something had happened. Do you think that I would respond to such a trifle and yet be ignorant of his death? Hmm. I have seen too much not to know that the impression of a woman may be more valuable than the conclusion of an analytical reasoner. And in this very letter, you certainly have a very strong piece of evidence to corroborate your view. But if your husband is alive and able to write letters, why should he remain away from you? I cannot imagine. It is unthinkable. And on Monday he made no remarks before leaving you. No. And you were surprised to see him in Swandham Lane. Yes, very much so. Was the window open? Yes. Then he might have called to you. He might. He only, as I understand, gave an inarticulate cry. Yes. A call for help, you thought. Yes, he waved his hands. But it might have been a cry of surprise. Astonishment at the unexpected sight of you might cause him to throw up his hands. It is possible. And you thought that he was pulled back? He disappeared so suddenly. Well, he might have leaped back. You did not see anyone else in the room? No. But this horrible man confessed to having been there, and the Lascar was at the front door at the foot of the steps. Quite so. Your husband, as far as you could see, had his ordinary clothes on. But without his collar or tie, I distinctly saw a bare throat. Has he ever spoken of Swandham Lane? Never. Had he ever shown any signs of having taken opium? Never. Thank you, Mrs. St. Clair. Those are the principal points about which I wish to be absolutely clear. We shall now have a little supper and then retire, for we may have a very busy day tomorrow. A large and comfortable double-bedded room had been placed at our disposal, and I was quickly between the sheets, for I was weary after my night of adventure. Sherlock Holmes was a man, however, who when he had an unsolved problem upon his mind, would go for days or even for a week without rest, turning it over, rearranging his facts, looking at it from every point of view until he had either fathomed it, or he had convinced himself that his data was insufficient. It was soon evident to me that he was now preparing for an all-night sitting. He took off his coat and waistcoat and put on a large blue dressing gown. And then he wandered about the room, collecting pillows from his bed and cushions from the sofa and armchairs. With these, he constructed a sort of eastern divan, upon which he perched himself cross-legged with an ounce of shag tobacco and a box of matches laid out in front of him in the dim light of the lamp. I saw him sitting there, an old briar pipe between his lips, his eyes fixed vacantly upon the corner of the ceiling, the blue smoke curling up from him, silent and motionless, with the light shining upon his strong, set, aquiline features. So he sat when I dropped off to sleep, and so he sat when a sudden yell caused me to wake up, and I found that the summer sun was shining into the apartment. The pipe was still between his lips, and the smoke still curled upwards, and the room was full of a dense tobacco haze, but nothing remained of the heap of shag which I had seen upon the previous night. Awake, Watson? he asked. Yes. Game for the morning drive? Certainly. Then dress. No one is stirring yet, but I know where the stable boy sleeps. 
and we shall soon have the trap out. He chuckled to himself as he spoke, his eyes twinkled, and he seemed a different man to the somber thinker of the previous night. As I dressed, I glanced at my watch. It was no wonder that no one was stirring. It was 25 minutes past four. I had hardly finished when Holmes returned with the news that the boy was putting out the horse. I want to test a little theory of mine, said he, pulling on his boots. I think, Watson, that you are now standing in the presence of one of the most absolute fools in Europe. I deserve to be kicked from here to Charing Cross, but I think that I have the key to the affair now. And where is it? I asked, smiling. In the bathroom, he answered. Oh yes, I am not joking, he continued, seeing my look of surprise. I have just been in there, and I have taken it out, and I have got it in this Gladstone bag. Come on, my boy, and we shall see whether or not it fits the lock. We made our way downstairs as quietly as possible and out into the bright morning sunshine. On the road stood our horse and trap, with the half-clad stable boy waiting at the head. We both sprang in, and away we dashed down the London road. A few country carts were stirring, bearing the vegetables to the metropolis, but the lines of villas on either side were as silent and lifeless as some city in a dream. It has been in some points a singular case, said Holmes, flicking the horse into a gallop. But I confess that I have been as blind as a mole. But it is better to learn wisdom late than never to learn it at all. In town, the earliest risers were just beginning to look sleepily from their windows as we drove through the streets of Surrey. Passing down the Waterloo Bridge Road, we crossed over the river, and dashing up Wellington Street, we wheeled sharply to the right and found ourselves in Bow Street. Sherlock Holmes was well known to the police force, and two constables at the door saluted him. One of them held the horse's head, while the other led us in. Who is on duty? asked Holmes. Inspector Bradstreet, sir. Ah, Bradstreet. How are you? A tall, stout official had come down the stone flagged passage in a peaked cap and a frogged jacket. I wish to have a word with you, Bradstreet. Certainly, Mr. Holmes. Step into my room here. It was a small office-like room with a huge ledger upon the table and a telephone projecting from the wall. The inspector sat down at his desk. What can I do for you, Mr. Holmes? I have called about that beggar man, Boone, the one who was charged with being concerned in the disappearance of Mr. Neville St. Clair of Lee. Yes, he was brought up and remanded for further inquiries. So I heard. You have him here? In the cells. Is he quiet? Oh, he gives us no trouble, but he is a dirty scoundrel. Dirty? Yes, it is all we can do to make him wash his hands, and his face is as black as a tinker's. Well, once his case has been settled, he will have to have a regular prison bath, and I think if you saw him, you would agree with me that he needed it. I should like very much to see him, would you? Well, that is easily done. Come this way. You can leave your bag here. No, I think I'll take it. Very good. Come this way, if you please. He led us down a passage, opened a barred door, and passed down a winding stair, and brought us to a whitewashed corridor with a line of doors on either side. The third on the right is his, said the inspector. Here it is. 
He quietly shot back a panel in the upper part of the door and glanced through. He is asleep, said he. You can see him very well. We both put our eyes into the grating. The prisoner lay with his face towards us in a very deep sleep, breathing slow and heavily. He was a middle-sized man, coarsely clad, as became his calling, with a coloured shirt protruding through the rent in his tattered cloak. He was, as the inspector had said, extremely dirty, but the grime which covered his face could not conceal its repulsive ugliness. A broad wheel from an old scar ran across from eye to chin, and by its contraction had turned up one side of the upper lip, so that three teeth were exposed in a perpetual snarl. A shock of very bright red hair grew low over his eyes and forehead. He is a beauty, isn't he? said the inspector. He certainly needs a wash, remarked Holmes. I had an idea that he might, and I took the liberty of bringing some tools with me. He opened his gladstone bag as he spoke and took out to my astonishment a very large bath sponge. He he, you are a funny one, chuckled the inspector. Now if you will have the great goodness to open that door very quietly, we will soon make him cut a much more respectable figure. Well, I don't know why not, said the inspector. He doesn't look a credit to the Bow Street cells, does he? He slipped his key into the lock and we all very quietly entered the cell. The sleeper half turned and then settled down once more into a deep slumber. Holmes stooped to the water jug and moistened his sponge and then he rubbed it twice vigorously across and down the prisoner's face. Let me introduce you, he shouted, to Mr. Neville St. Clair of Lee in the county of Kent. Never in my life had I seen such a sight. The man's face peeled off under the sponge like the bark from a tree. Gone was the coarse brown tint, and gone too was the horrid scar, and the twisted lip, which had given the repulsive sneer to the face. A twitch brought away the tangled red hair, and there, sitting up in his bed, was the pale, sad-faced, refined-looking man, black-haired and smooth-skinned, rubbing his eyes and staring about him with a deep, sleepy bewilderment. Then suddenly realising the exposure, he broke into a scream and threw himself down with his face upon the pillow. Great heaven, cried the inspector. It is indeed the missing man. I know him from the photograph. The prisoner turned with a reckless air of a man who abandons himself to his destiny. Be it so, said he, and pray what am I charged with? With making away with Mr. Neville's... Well, of course you can't be charged with that, unless they make a case of attempted suicide with it, said the inspector with a grin. Well, I have been 27 years in the force, but this really takes the cake. If I am Mr. Neville St. Clair, then it is obvious that no crime has been committed, and therefore I am illegally detained. Well, no crime has been committed, but a very great error has been committed, said Holmes. You would have done better to have trusted your wife. It was not the wife, it was the children, groaned the prisoner. God help me, I would not have had them ashamed of their father. My God, what an exposure. What can I do? Sherlock Holmes sat down beside him on the couch and patted him kindly on the shoulder. If you leave it to the court of law to clear the matter up, said he, of course you can hardly avoid the publicity. On the other hand, if you convince the police authority 
that there is no possible case against you. I do not know that there is any reason that the details should find their way into the papers. Inspector Bradstreet would, I am sure, make notes upon anything which you might tell us, and then submit it to the proper authorities. The case would never then go up to the court at all. God bless you, cried the prisoner passionately. I would have endured imprisonment, aye, even execution, rather than to have left my miserable secret as a family blot to my children. You are the first who ever heard my story. My father was a schoolmaster in Chesterfield, and when I received an excellent education, I travelled in my youth and took to the stage, and finally I became a reporter on the evening paper in London. One day my editor wished me to have a series of articles upon begging in the metropolis, and I volunteered to supply them. There was the point from which all my adventures started. It was only that by trying begging as an amateur that I could get the facts upon which to base my articles. When an actor I had of course learned the secrets of making up, and had been famous in the green room for my skill. I took advantage now of my attainments. I painted my face to make myself as pitiable as possible. I made a good scar and fixed one side of my lip in a twist by the aid of a small slip of flesh-coloured plaster. Then with the red head of hair and an appropriate dress, I took my station in the busiest part of the city, ostensibly as a match seller, but really as a beggar. For seven hours I plied my trade, and when I returned home in the evening, I found to my surprise that I had received no less than 26 shillings and fourpence. I wrote my articles and then thought a little more of the matter until some time later when I backed a bill for a friend and had a writ served upon me for 25 pounds. I was at my wit's end. I didn't know where to get the money. But then a sudden idea came to me. I begged a fortnight's grace from the creditor and asked for a holiday from my employers and spent the time in begging in the city under my disguise. In 10 days I had the money and I had paid the debt. Well, you can imagine how hard it was to settle down to arduous work at two pounds a week when I knew that I could earn as much in a day by smearing my face with a little paint and laying my cap upon the ground and sitting still. It was a long fight between my pride and the money, but the dollars won at last, and I threw up reporting and sat down day after day in the corner which I had chosen, inspiring pity by my ghastly face and filling my pockets with coppers. Only one man knew my secret. He was the keeper of the low den in which I used to lodge in Swandham Lane, where I would every morning emerge as a squalid beggar and in the evening transform myself into a well-dressed man about town. This fellow, a Lascar, was well paid by me for his rooms, so I knew that my secret was safe in his possession. Well, very soon I found that I was saving considerable sums of money. I do not mean that any beggar in the streets of London could earn £700 a year, which is less than my average takings, but I had an exceptional advantage in my power of making up, but also in my facility for repartee, which improved by practice and made me quite a recognised character in the city. All day a stream of pennies varied by silver poured in upon me, and it was a very bad day upon which I failed to take two pounds. As I grew richer, I grew more ambitious. I took a house in the country and eventually married, 
without anyone having a suspicion as to my real occupation. My dear wife knew that I had business in the city, but she knew little what. Last Monday I had finished for the day and was dressing in my room above the opium den when I looked out of the window and saw to my horror and my astonishment that my wife was standing in the street with her eyes full fixed upon me. I gave a great cry of surprise and threw up my arms to cover my face, and rushing to my confidant, the Lascar, I entreated him to prevent anyone from coming up to me. I heard her voice downstairs but I knew that she could not ascend. Swiftly I threw off my clothes, I put on those of the beggar, and I put on my pigments and wig. Even a wife's eyes could not pierce so complete a disguise. But when it occurred to me that there might be a search in the room and that the clothes might betray me, I threw them out upon the open window. I threw open the window, reopening by my violence a small cut which I had inflicted upon myself in the bedroom that morning. Then I seized my coat, which was weighted down by the coppers which I had just transferred to it from the leather bag which I carried my takings in. I hurled it out of the window and it disappeared into the Thames. The other clothes would have followed, but at that moment there was the rush of the constables coming up the stairs, and a few minutes later I found rather I confess to my relief that instead of being identified as Mr. St. Clair, I was arrested as his murderer. I do not know that there is anything else for me to explain. I was determined to preserve my disguise as long as possible, and hence my preference for a dirty face, knowing that my wife would be terribly anxious. I slipped off my ring and confided it to the Lascar in a moment when no constable was watching me, together with a hurried scrawl telling her that she had no cause to fear. That note reached her only yesterday, said Holmes. Good God, what a week she must have spent. The police have watched this Lascar, said Inspector Bradstreet, and I am quite certain that he might find it difficult to post a letter unobserved Probably he handed it to some sailor, a customer of his who forgot all about it for some days. That was it, said Holmes, nodding approvingly. I have no doubt of it. But have you never been prosecuted for begging? Many times. But what was a fine to me? It must stop here, however, said Bradstreet. If the police are to hush this thing up, there must be no more of Hugh Boone. I have sworn it by the most solemn oaths which a man can take said Neville St. Clair. In that case, I think it probable that no further steps may be taken. But if you are found again, then all must come out. I am sure, Mr. Holmes, that we are very much indebted to you for having cleared this matter up. I wish I knew how you reached your results. I reached this one, said my friend, by sitting upon five pillows and consuming an ounce of shag. I think, Watson, that if we drive to Baker Street, we may just be in time for breakfast.